I am an equal opportunity hater. I wake up every single morning and I watch Fox News and CNN so I can start my day off pissed off at everyone. I hate them all. Peterson asked me if I felt that I had made amends. And the answer was no. And the answer now is no. I'm not the least bit sure if anybody is going to listen to this episode at all because there's a lot of wallowing and self-pity, I guess. She tells me and my sister that I have sold my soul to Satan. That does not sound like bullshit. That sounds like the truth. This woman's nuts. This was how we lived. But as long as whatever choice you're making is based on love, you're going to be all right. I like what that dude's got to say. About 1% are people who wish that I would roll up in a corner and die. Sorry about that. What do you want me to do about it? Get off your ass and do something. Johnson, former United States most wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, and host of the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, today's episode, we're doing a Jordan Peterson debrief. That's right. I've not really responded or commented about the Jordan Peterson interview that we had, so we're going to do that today. So take some time out. Let Brady wax philosophic on the entire interview and and what my thoughts are on that, thoughts on the feedback, my takeaways from it. And I think it's going to be a very good episode. That being said, we're going to get into the show in just a second. Why am I here? So the thing is, is we've now split the Brett Johnson show up into two. We've got criminal thoughts and we've got the Brett Johnson show. And, And it never fails that before I do a show, I often have a phone call or a talk with someone that influences a lot of what I'm thinking about for that day. And just about an hour and a half ago, I was talking to a psychologist on the phone, talked to her for about an hour and a half. And we were talking about the Jordan Peterson show, but also talking about um, being truthful, about not being dogmatic, about doing better. And I think that's what I'm wanting to do with the Brett Johnson show. So all the, all the criminal stuff is going to be migrating to criminal thoughts. So you want to know about cybersecurity or cybercrime or fraud or scams and stuff like that. Typically, that's going to be found on criminal thoughts. It was very interesting. She said at one point during this phone conversation, she thought I was getting tired of talking about cybercrime and cybersecurity. And I, my response was, yeah, I'm pretty apathetic. That pays my bills. But... I'm not really as interested in that as I'm interested in uh, knowing who I am, why I do the things I do, and trying to become a better person. So that's really what the Brett Johnson show, I think, is going to really concentrate on, is that there's going to be a slew of solo episodes. We're going to be talking to people who have also done better, because that's what things are all about, right? We can get up every single day. And we can try to do better than we have done before. We can try to be better than we've been. And if we can't do that, something's wrong. But that should be our goal every day. 
And I think that's what I want this show to be, is, is talking about me trying to be better and talking to other people who, have, who are doing better or trying to do better. The problems that they encounter, the, the victories that they achieve, I think that's what we're going to do. That being said, we're going to move things right along. We're going to do the headline of the day. All right, from the headlines, in case you've not noticed, Donald Trump has been kicked off of the Colorado ballot and the main ballot. Now, here's the thing. For those who have been following me for longer than a minute or two, you know that I am an equal opportunity hater. I wake up every single morning and I watch Fox News and CNN so I can start my day off pissed off at everyone. I hate them all. I didn't like Trump when he was in office. Matter of fact, if you go back in my Twitter feed, you will see that every single night I said goodnight to everyone and then fuck Trump every night. I don't like Joe Biden either. I'm an equal opportunity hater. I hate them almost as much as, yeah, equally, equally. I'm not okay with the front runner in the presidential race because Donald Trump absolutely is. I'm not okay with a front runner in the presidential race being kicked off the ballot when nothing has been proven against him. Now, that being said, did Donald Trump, did he engage in insurrection? Was he as happy as a pig in pig shit that the riot was going on at the Capitol? Yes, I think that he was, but you know what? Me thinking something doesn't prove something. We live in a country where people who are accused of things, before consequences are enacted, those people get to face their accusers. Those people get to see the evidence against them. That evidence is weighed against them. And then a decision, a judgment is made. Right now, we're not seeing that. Right now, we're seeing someone that is being punished without anything being proven. Just because CNN says something doesn't make it so. And I'm not okay with that. Now, I know Donald Trump, for a lot of the population, a huge part of the demographic, they don't like that some bitch. And you know what? That's fine. But it starts with people that you don't like. And before you know it, those same types of things are happening to people you do like. And then after a while, it happens to you. And then it's too damn late to do anything about it. We live in a country of rules, laws. There's something wrong when something like this is happening to someone, whether you like that individual or not. We can do better than this. We can absolutely do better than this. Just because we don't like someone doesn't mean that we have to do what we're seeing right now. I'm Brett Johnson. I just wanted to leave those thoughts in your head because you know what? What are you going to do about it? I honestly don't know. Someone like me, what can I do about Donald Trump being kicked off the ballot? Not a damn thing. Not a damn thing. I can talk about it. And maybe you could hear it. And maybe you can talk about it too. And maybe if we talk about it enough, it causes enough chatter out there that someone in authority listens and does something about it. We can only hope. So it's time for the meat of today's episode, a Jordan Peterson debrief. So I, I guess the question would be, well, Brett, how did you get a Jordan Peterson interview? And honestly, 
a lot of hard work. Um, I have been doing podcast speaking, consulting in the press and media for several years. Not only that, but I've been uh, I've been pretty pretty constant about not breaking the law, about doing the right damn thing, about calling out the things that need to be called out that no one else will call out. I was on the Lex Friedman show. That thing got, it's I think it's at 6.7 million views right now. And I actually think that that's where a lot of the connections of other podcasts came. You know, So uh, I was on Megyn Kelly on a few other big ones as well. I was speaking at University of California, flew into Dallas. When I landed in Dallas, there was a text message at that point in time. It was a uh, it was a Thursday or Friday, and it was from Jordan Peterson's production team. And they were saying, hey, we know it's short notice, but is there any possible way you can come and interview with Jordan Peterson on Monday, like four days away? And my response was, well, shit, yeah, I can absolutely do that. I love the dude. Now, here's the thing. I have never sat down and watched or listened to a Jordan Peterson podcast. All right, I don't watch podcasts. I really don't. I, yes, I run a podcast, but I don't watch the damn things. Don't ask me why. I'm just like that. Where I get my Jordan Peterson stuff is, is from the talk, you know, TikTok. Those shorts, he's got those little clips. And I'm like, you know what? I like what that dude's got to say. I like the way he raises hell. I'm a fan of his. Never really sat down and watched any talks of his, any speeches, anything else like that. But I like the dude. So I was like, absolutely, I want to be on there. Everybody likes it. Well, not every, everyone knows who Jordan Peterson is. So I responded. They hooked us up. I flew into Arizona, Phoenix that Sunday. Monday was the interview. What is Jordan Peterson like? I couldn't tell you. He got there about five, eight minutes before the actual recording started. Didn't really say much of anything to me. Sat down in the chair. And for those who have, who have watched or not watched it, he starts out with a about a seven minute question slash monologue talking about psychopathy psychopaths here's the thing i don't uh i don't really care what people think of me i don't um that's one of the benefits of prison you, you you've hit rock bottom so much you've uh done so much damage to your life and others that you develop a very thick skin. My self-worth comes from inside. It doesn't come from how people view me. I, I like it like that. But when one of the top psychologists on the planet is sitting across from you and he talks for seven minutes about psychopaths, it is not a comfortable feeling. It makes one very uncomfy. And as such, I was. I wanted to mention that today because I, I recently interviewed uh, Matt Cox from the True Crime Channel. I interviewed him on Criminal Thoughts, and we started talking about psychopaths and sociopaths on that show. And oddly enough, today on this other phone call I had with this young lady that's a psychologist, she's going to be on the Brett Johnson show in a couple of weeks. With that young lady, we also talked about psychopaths and sociopaths and and. Negative comments I can handle. What really gets me is when someone responds or calls me a sociopath or a psychopath. That bothers me. It, it combination of anger, shame, uh, embarrassment, a series of emotions come through me at that point in time. And I, 
I was asked today, uh, you know, why I feel that way. And I mentioned it to Matt as well. And uh, it bothers me because I'm scared that it might be true. If I'm a psychopath, how do you cure that? Well, you friggin' don't. And that bothers me. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be that person, but I have to start considering that it may be. Now, the lady I talked to today, she doesn't think that I am. We were talking about the childhood, how that kind of informed my future as a criminal. And what I said was, well, you know, I, I, I don't know if I agree with that because I, I like to, I, there's absolutely a problem. And I talk about that on Jordan Peterson, you know, my childhood. And there's been comments. If anyone reads the comments on Jordan Peterson, there's 99% of them are outstanding comments. You know, they're, they're very, um, they're very kind to me. And the things that I've talked about on that show now, about 1% are people who wish that I would roll up in a corner and die. Fortunately, I'm not dying, but I am not the only person who's had a bad childhood. And those people, a lot of those people never go off and break the law. They go off and they're very productive citizens. I am not that guy. I'm the guy who goes off and has a, a very big career in crime. Nothing to be proud of. I don't like the idea that it was anything but my decision to commit that crime. What I say is, is that when you're a child, you can't help what the adults in your circle are doing. You're going to do what those adults are doing. But when I became an adult, I had the opportunity to decide a choice and I chose to commit crime. For my own benefit, I have to separate that. You know, any logical person, if you sit down and rationally think about it, you think about your childhood. If I would have had a different childhood, would I have engaged in a career in crime? Probably not. All right. And that's that's a rational thought process. But the way that I lead my life, I choose not to think like that. I choose to think that, no, I'm going to separate the childhood from my choices as an adult. Just because I had that childhood doesn't mean that I had to make those choices as an adult. And I think that's a lot of what we cover, that type of subject, without really saying it in the Jordan Peterson interview. It's just this idea that really bothers me of being that sociopath. You guys will see the, uh, the Matt Cox interview. Matt doesn't have the issue that I have about being called a sociopath or a psychopath. He, uh, he, he basically says, yep, sorry about that. What do you want me to do about it? I'm the guy that's like, mm -hmm, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. But when we were talking. What was interesting was Matt said that if someone angered him, that most people would respond immediately to that anger and lash out. But he wasn't that type of individual. He was more the individual that would wait and get revenge or really count it. And... One thing about me, I'm not a dogmatic person. I, I will listen. It may take me some time sometimes, but I will listen to people. You can get through to me. And as he was saying that, it occurred to me, well, you know, I'm kind of that guy. If someone pisses me off, I'm the guy that, yeah, I'll still be your buddy for a while, but somewhere down the line, 
I'm going to get even with you. And I brought that up today in that conversation with this other psychologist. We were talking about the Peterson interview and she asked me for specific exa examples. And here's the thing. I had to go back to my childhood to really point out specific examples. I used to be like that, but I can't think of any time in the past decade or longer where I've been like that. And so I think that I think I'm having some improvement. You know, back then, it's, it's interesting. Back then we were uh, it was me and my sister. And then I had two cousins. We three boys, we would steal from each other all the time. Like if one of us got a nice jacket, the other ones would would steal it. If one of us got uh, like a Sony Walkman or a new cassettes, you know, music, what have you, we would we would steal it. But we would arrange something where we would make ourselves angry at the person that we were stealing it from, and that would justify the action of stealing it. Yeah, that sounds like a sociopath, and it is, except I was a child back then, and that was the norm back then, so it's not really a sociopath. I just wanted to kind of share that. Um, you know, we're talking about the Jordan Peterson interview. My producer, uh, uh, Shana and Brian, we were talking about this yesterday, and Brian mentioned, he's like, you know what, that, Peterson thing, it's still getting you a little bit, isn't it? And I was like, well, yeah, I'm not ready to let that shit go yet. And I was wanting to talk about surviving abuse as a child because me and my sister, we went through that shit. And here's the thing. If I tell these stories, it's like when I tell the story that it minimizes what actually happened. It's like once I verbalize it, I'm trying to tell myself, well, it's not that serious. It's not that serious. You know, that happened. It's not that bad. But it's pretty damn bad. I mean, my mom and my dad, they, they would argue all the time. My mom is the, uh, was always the abuser, um, physical, mental, verbal, mental, uh, emotional. She would always, you know, lash out and test people's love. You know, can I do this to you and you'll still love me? And I remember that at one point we were in uh, Panama City, Florida, my mom and dad, they were, they were avid readers and they had this king side bed and they would, one of them would lay on each side of the bed and they would read their paperback books through the day. That's how they spent their day most of the days. And they would argue as they were doing it. And they were in the bedroom arguing. Me and Denise were in, in our respective bedrooms. And my mom yells at us, Shannon, and I used to go by Shannon, Shannon, Denise, come here. So my mom, you walk into the bedroom, king size bed is there. My mom's over next to the wall on that side of the bed. My dad is on the other side. And uh, me and Denise walk in. I'm in front of my sister. And my dad, his, his favorite catchphrase back then was, Carol and Sue, don't. Just please stop. Just please stop. And he was saying this already. And she was like, shut up, Ray Jean. So she, she calls me and Denise over to her side of the bed. And there's a little bitty narrow Wall, you know, space between the bed and the wall. So we had, you know, we were standing there and my mom used to smoke these more cigarettes. So these menthol cigarettes are these long brown cigarettes. And she calls us over there and I'm, I'm standing in front of Denise, I guess, you know, kind of shielding her. And, uh, mom looks at us and she was like, you know, you know, mommy loves you. And we were like, yes, mom. And she's like, you know, you, you know, mommy would do anything for you. And we're like, yes, mom, we're only shit. I, I think we're, you know, nine, 10 years old, something like that. And uh, she's like, well, I'm going to show you how much I love you. So she's smoking the cigarette and my dad, he's over on the other side. Carolyn, please stop. Please stop. Please stop. And she takes a cigarette. She holds out her arm and she pretends to burn herself. 
Now, I say pretend because I, I was close enough. You could see her take the cigarette and act like she was touching her arm to it. But the damn cigarette was, you know, two inches away from the arm. And she's sitting there screaming, ah, it burns, it burns. My dad, Carolyn Sue, please stop, please stop. And that's how she showed that she loved us. She wanted us to believe that she would burn herself for that. Now, here's what's screwed up. As if that wasn't screwed up already. Here's what's screwed up. As a child, I remember thinking that, so she's, she's showing us how much she loves us, and she's showing us this by burning herself, but she's not really burning herself. She's pretending to, so that must mean she must not really love us. That's just one story. And there's, there's a few comments on the Jordan Peterson show that talk about um, this episode I had when my mom pulls a knife on a guy who was offering me a scholarship at, at university. My sister went to Berea College. Um, Berea College is one of the top colleges in the United States. It's called the Harvard of the South. It's a free school. Every single student there works their way through university. Denise went there and uh, she was majoring in history, education. My sister had been there about a year. My mom finds out through the grapevine, my mom finds out that my sister has a boyfriend. Mom gets in the car, drives to Berea, walks into the president's office, proceeds to tell the president that my sister is on drugs that her boyfriend is not really her boyfriend. Her boyfriend is her pimp, and he's pimping her out. And she requests the president to throw Denise out of school. Now, Berea is a very conservative school. The president believed that bullshit, and they institute proceedings to start throwing Denise out. The only thing that saved Denise and, and not only that, my, my mom also goes to the neighborhood where this where my, where my sister's boyfriend lives, and she tells all the neighbors the exact same thing. My mom is a very, um, she's a very good manipulator. And when you first meet her, she comes off, when she's doing this kind of shit, she comes off very rational. I mean, she, she's very calm, cool, collected. She's got everything laid out, and she's very believable. So it was, the, the president bought it hook, line, and sinker. The problem is, is that my mom cannot sustain that. She falls apart sooner or later, always. What saved my sister is my sister had a couple of, of – uh, she had a friend, and the friend's parents knew my mom, and they knew what kind of nut she was. They heard that Denise was about to get thrown out of school. They were an alma mater of Berea College, knew the president, and they went and told the president, hey, this woman's fucking nuts. Don't believe it. Well, the president calls my mom, and my mom, as I said, she can't really sustain it. She ends up threatening to kill the president over the phone as well, and Denise gets to stay in school. This type of, of stories that I'm telling you is stuff that happened constantly it's, it's not just one-offs it was always something okay it was always something that was the point I, i've told this story before where my mom calls me and denise into the, uh, the living room my dad the only job he could get when we moved to panama city was working as a night clerk at 7-eleven he was making uh, i think like 140 280 a week something like that i think yeah something like that and um 
He's gone at work. Me and Denise are playing video games. My mom calls us into the living room. She's got all the lights cut off. She's got incense burning, candles burning. She's got two dining room chairs set up in the middle of the, uh, the living room facing each other. And she tells me and my sister that I have sold my soul to Satan so that you and Denise can have a good future. But you've got to prove that you're worth it. And Satan, once you graduate school, Satan is going to call me home. Now, that sounds like bullshit. But here's the thing. When you're eight or nine years old, that does not sound like bullshit. That sounds like the truth because your parents telling you that. So we had to prove that we were worth it. And the way you prove that you're worth it is your mom sits in one dining room chair that's facing the other. You sit in the other. You make eye contact with your mom. You can't blink. You make eye contact and she's going to let Satan come out through her eyes. And you have to think happy Jesus thoughts so that you're not possessed and taken over by evil. And we did that shit for hours. Four hours. These, these types of stories that I'm telling you are not outliers. They're not unique stories. This was how we lived. It, it, was, it was constant. Mom would um, tell us that she had given up her life for us, that she was going to leave, never come back, that we'd find her dead in a ditch someplace, and, and the results of that. So with my sister, that resulted in my sister becoming a very angry individual. With me, that resulted in me becoming a very dependent individual. I was the guy who believed what my mom said, that she was going to leave, that she was going to be dead someplace. And she, she played that card constantly. And that's, that's, that's a lot of what, um, for lack of a better word, that was the word that was used today on this other phone call that I had. It's a lot of what informs my future or that fear of being abandoned of the people that I love leaving. And my dad was absolutely like that as well. So it's, it's that, it's that idea of surviving abuse and, and the thing, and that's, that's what I really talk about a lot in these interviews. If, if people who've watched the Lex Friedman interview without saying it, that's what I'm talking about is how do you grow up in an environment like that, where it's constant, constant, where you don't have any type of moral compass to know what to follow, who to follow, how you're supposed to behave. You don't know what's right and what's not. How do you survive that? Jordan Peterson, without really saying it, that's really what I'm talking about through most of that interview is that same thing. And the answer is, is, is it's complicated. <laughs> Some of the comments on the Jordan Peterson YouTube channel about my episode, this, this guy named Shane Tapp, he responds, he says, man, my story is so similar in so many ways to Brett's in terms of a dysfunctional upbringing but wild how different the outcomes are. No idea where it came from, but my moral compass moved more towards being a good person to spite my upbringing. Almost, I would say, as a rebellion against those who were my parents. Days without food, and rather than steal, 
I'd be the humble kid knocking on doors and asking for eggs. So wild that it's in the same area too, this Tri-Cities area of Johnson City, Kingsport, Bristol. You know, I read his comment and, you know, how do you respond to a comment like that? Well, I don't know, but I responded, glad you are okay. He says, okay is a relative term. There are aspects of it that causes issues like cutting people out of my life with an ease that shocks people. I can do that. I am absolutely on the same page as this guy. And he goes on. He says, I'm more impressed with your change, though. It's a difficult change to make, but you made it after so many years. You're kind of a hero in my book. Watching you speak of your past and your reactions to Mr. Peterson's questions are one of the rawest and real emotions a person can have. I feel those emotions in my bones. Glad like hell you've pulled out of the predisposed trajectory of your life. And I'm hoping that change came with all the things that were missing in your youth. True love a true purpose, and an authentically happy life. I sent uh, my producer a snapshot of that comment because that's what I wanted to really inform or base this episode around what was this, this trajectory of my life. My sister did not engage in criminal activity. She, she, she shoplifted because we didn't have any food in the house. She shoplifted a pack of pork chops, and that led to me entering, a, a, starting my life, a crime of a shoplifter. But once they were caught shoplifting, my sister never commits a crime again. She goes off to be a, 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 a teacher, a good parent, a, a good citizen. She's got anger issues. To this day, she's got anger issues. My father died October 2nd of last year. And... Um, Denise didn't talk to him. She always blamed him for the abuse that we suffered as children. Now, he suffered abuse too. But he was the only other adult in the house. I missed out on being a parent. I didn't want to... Uh, I didn't want to grow up to be like my mom, and I was scared I might. So I never had children of my own. I married my, my wife now, Michelle, and she has three sons. I, I claim two of them. Two of them because the oldest one, Taylor, was in the United States Navy when I met his mother. So I don't really claim him. I, I, maybe he's like 2.5, you know, but um, the other two I claim. I don't know how to raise children. What I base my decisions on is, is simply trying to make sure that they grow up to be good human beings. Sometimes I know what that is. Sometimes I don't. But I try. And I had a counselor tell me about three, four years ago that parents screw up. But as long as whatever choice you're making is based on love, you're going to be all right. 
And I took that to heart because, yeah, hey, I screw up sometimes. But there's not anything that I do with those two boys. They're young men now. There's not anything that I do that is not based on love. If I'm angry at them, and typically I want to kill one of them about once a day, I don't act in that anger. I go off and I count to 10. I pet my pup, my PTSD puppy. I calm down. And then we have a talk. I was not a, uh, a parent myself. But I look back now, and I think I would have been all right. I don't think I would have been like uh, my mom or my dad. Well, there was the crime aspect, right? You don't want to have kids when you're a criminal. There was that too. I miss not having children. I do. I, I absolutely miss the hell out of that. I think that's one of the things that uh, that really makes us human. Is doing that. Is having children. And I, I really regret that. And my two boys now, they're, they're outstanding human beings. My, uh, my youngest, Carson, he, he got himself a girlfriend. And uh, she invited him. We're in Birmingham. She invited him to, uh, down to Mobile, which is like a four-hour drive for New Year's Eve. He was supposed to stay at her house with her parents. So he was going to meet the parents, you know, hang out and um, stay there like two, three days. Well, he gets there New Year's Eve. This girl had she had bought him for Christmas. She had bought him an Auburn jersey because unfortunately he's an Auburn football fan. She had bought him an Auburn jersey. She had bought him Atlanta Braves tickets because unfortunately he's an Atlanta Braves fan as well. He picks the worst teams on, on the planet to support. So she had bought him that. She had made his favorite cake. They were going to a party that evening, a New Year's Eve party to bring in the new year. About seven o'clock, she walks in, sits down and tells him, you know, I hate to say this. And I know it's New Year's Eve. And I know it's dark and I know you're four hours away from home, but you're going to have to leave. I'm breaking up with you. Complete, got him completely off guard. Now, this young man, he's a good kid. He is. He's a good kid. He's got issues, which I've documented on some of my shows, and I typically want to kill him about once a day. But he's a good guy. Got him completely unaware. He uh, he calls his mom devastated. Just crying, trying to drive back. And uh, long story short, we loaded up everyone in the vehicle, and we drove two and a half hours to meet him on the road to bring his ass home. I don't think I would have been a bad parent. I think I would have been all right. I think I am all right. But we're not talking about, I just wanted to share that with you. We're, we're talking about this, this trajectory of Brett Johnson's life that we were talking, uh, that I was talking about Jordan Peterson on. And that's one of the things I talked today with this, uh, this psychologist about is, um, how the childhood results in me being this godfather of cybercrime. I had, there was another comment, I'm not going to pull it up. There's another comment on Jordan Peterson where somebody responded talking about me and they said, this person 
was meant to do great things. They were meant to be respected. They were meant to, to be beneficial to society, to be read about on a Wikipedia page for something other than crime. And it's a shame that he had the shitty parents that he did. What do you say to that? I'm doing a lot of good these days. I am. I, I work hard every single day to, uh, to try to help people, protect people, be better than I've been in the past. And that's my, that's my goal. Be better than I've been in the past. And I think I'm getting there. You know, I never had control when I was a kid. And that, that kind of shapes my entire life. When I was a child... I mentioned this on Peterson. When I was a child, there was a point in my very early, you know, eight years old, something like that, that, that I would catch my mom and dad gone and I would urinate in the floor. I would become a carpet pisser like on Big Lebowski. I would urinate in the floor. I didn't talk about that until I was well in my 40s. I was on a stage when I mentioned it. And uh, first time I'd ever shared that. And what happens is a lady comes up to me afterwards and she had in her previous career had worked with abused children. And she tells me that was normal, that, you know, that type of action, children do that because at, at the end of the day, that's the only control they have left is that. That that lack of control. Is what results in me not doing drugs because I did not want to lose control and my mother was an addict. That lack of control is what causes Shadow Crew, the first dark web marketplace and criminal organization online of its type, to be ran the way it was ran and be as successful as it was because I was in complete control of it. So this, this idea that the childhood, the abuses that one suffers as a child has a uh, determining factor on who you become as an adult is absolutely true. I don't like to admit that because uh, admitting that to me makes it seem like I don't have control of things. I prefer to say that it's my choice to commit crime, and it is. It absolutely is. But I can't uh, dismiss that childhood. And I know that people out there have, have, have had worse childhoods and upbringings, and they did not do the shit that I did. I absolutely know that. And that's one of the things I have problems with is trying to figure out what separates <clears throat> the two. Why, why one individual like myself will go off into a career of crime and another individual like Shane Tapp has a very bad upbringing and he goes off in the opposite direction of doing every single thing right just to spite the upbringing that he had. And the thing is, is I don't know the answer to that. And that is what I am. Uh, that is what I am adamant about trying to figure out. Jordan Peterson. 
when that interview came request came through, there was not a doubt in my mind that I wanted that to be a therapy session for Breddy. Not a doubt in my mind. I figured, hey, son of a bitch knows what he's talking about. Get in there and get me some therapy. So that's what uh, that's what took place. I don't know what Mr. Peterson or Dr. Peterson was planning on it to be, but right out of the gate, I was planning on getting me some therapy because that's the thing about me is I, I'm, I'm the guy these days and I've been now for several years. I'm the guy who wants to understand myself. I want to understand who I am, why I do the things I do, why other people do the things they do. I don't give, okay, I do care about cybersecurity and cybercrime, but not like this. What I care about is understanding people. I care about being a better person than I've been and why I've done the things I do and what I need to do in the future in order to fix these things or amend these things. And I don't know what that looks like a lot of the time, but I, I, I keep trying to find out. And I, I think that uh, you know, I go back to that counselor three or four years ago who told me that as long as you're acting, you know, your choices are based on, uh, on love, that you're not going to stray too far off, that you're going to be okay. And that's really what I try to base everything on is that. I was asked today by this lady on the phone and she was giving me a lot of comments about Mr. Peterson. She, she likes him and she doesn't like him. And I was like, yeah, I was comfortable. I had fun and I didn't have fun. This is one of those episodes, I guess, where, where Brett is, is very introspective and, and thinking about my life, my future, where I wanted to go, where it's been. I'm going through it right now. I am. I, I guess it's because my, my dad passed away in October. It's because my uh, my mom has been trying to call me for for a few months now, and I, I I don't want to take that call because I know that it's going to be the manipulative call because she's left voice messages that indicate that it's going to be I I need I need I need I give me give me give me I'm dying I'm dying I'm dying come see me come see me come see me I love you I love you love you blah 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 use you use you use you. I'm avoiding that. My sister has not, uh, I love the shit out of my sister. I guess she has not handled the death of my father well. As I said, she's blamed him for everything. And he is accountable. Absolutely is. But at, at some point, you have to uh, you have to let that shit go. And I'm still trying. Denise, I don't think, is, is anywhere near it. And um, she's not spoken to me since uh, the second week of October of last year. I really don't understand how parents can be like that. I made the comment last October as my dad was dying that uh, that my mom and dad should have never been parents. And I think I, I don't know how I feel about that. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, I look at who I am today and uh, the work that I'm doing. And to a large degree, I like myself. So I, I think that as bad a parents as they were, and they were, I think that it was a good thing at the end of the day that they were. Because uh, I, I think I'm a benefit more than I am a detriment these days.
to society. Just my thought process on that. Do you feel that you have atoned for your past? No. Okay, that's a good answer, by the way. <laughs> no. Everyone should be very careful about saying yes to that, no matter who they are. What do you think you would have to do to, to atone? I don't know. That's a good answer, too. Right. Well, keep trying is one answer. Yeah. So that part, we have talked about, at that point in time, this is, you know, two hours into the interview. Things are wrapping up. I decided a few years ago that 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 I, I constantly, if I was going to do this shit for a living, speaking, podcast, whatever, that I always wanted to try to find something new about myself. That self-discovery, that's that's what's most important in my life, is, is finding out who I am and, and also trying to help people. Peterson asked me if, uh, if I felt that I had made amends. And the answer was no. And the answer now is no. I have my first cousin, Frances. She's down in, she's in Hazard, Kentucky. She's a good woman. And she asked me after she watched that interview if I had forgiven myself. And the answer to that is no. And I told her that for me right now, that's healthy. That uh, me not forgiving myself yet is absolutely resulting in me continuing to work my ass off to do better. Peterson asked me what uh, what that looks like, you know, what what I need to do to make amends. And the answer is I honestly don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't. I victimize a lot of people. I had the lady lady today ask me what I thought of myself, and I said, well, I think I'm pretty much, I've been a piece of shit that's trying these days not to be a piece of shit. She chuckled and laughed. She's like, that's very fair. And I was like, yeah, it is. The thing is, is I'm, I'm trying to be better. I don't think that you can make amends for your past actions. I think you can, me, I think that I can make sure that my decisions today, tomorrow, and every other day are good choices. And that's what I try to do. I don't think that, uh, I don't think there's amends to be made so much as trying to balance a scale that is absolutely overweighted with doing bad things. Uh, you know, I, I was years as a liar, as uh, as a thief, as uh, someone who did not care about his fellow man, as someone that was, uh, I was very self-centered, very conceited, not very humble. Years of that, years. I'm working to try to, to balance the skill at the, at the end of the day. Because, you know, I said this about my dad, that, that I don't believe that there are good men or bad men, that there are just men. And those men are capable of good and bad things. I would like to view my life as that. I have trouble doing that a lot of the time. But I would like to view my life as that. 
I'm hoping, I don't know how I get there, but I'm hoping that I do enough stuff, stuff that at the end of the day, that those scales balance out. I would not like, I don't want to be remembered as the guy who was that liar, who was that thief who stole all the money. I'd like to be remembered as the guy who was able to turn things around that, that that's remembered as, Hey, he did some good stuff. That's, that's, uh, that's important to me. And I am not sure. I'm not the least bit sure if anybody is going to listen to this episode at all, because there's a lot of, uh, of wallowing and self-pity, I guess, or self-reflection or whatever you want to call it. But this this episode with Peterson has bothered me. It's it's bothered me because um, because of that monologue at the beginning with uh, having to do with psychopathy. It's bothered me because um, reflecting back on the childhood, uh, the psychologist that I spoke to today, and as I said, she's coming on the show in a couple of weeks. She was really taken aback by the uh, the incident where I had that school scholarship for acting. And my mom pulled a knife on the guy. Peterson says the same thing that I should have, that I could have went ahead and went to California as well. And I, I never really had the answer for that. Um, there's a comment that, that, that alluded to that. And the comment said that at that point in time, that it, it reinforced what my mom had been instilling in me the entire time that, that low self-esteem, that it was wrong of me to think of anything outside of uh, simply adhering to her. And once that knife was pulled, I just went into, well, I'm not worth anything more than, uh, than being here and committing crime. I'm not sure if that's 100% accurate, but I think it's close. And, and the Peterson episode absolutely resonates with me, but uh, I spent a lot of time trying to uh, to think these things out. I take these long road trips. I'm going to uh, to Austin, Texas in late January. I'm not going to fly. I'm going to drive from Birmingham out to Austin, you know, eight, nine hours. And I do that so I can just crank some heavy metal music up and think about these things. I, it gives me the opportunity to try to process through uh, a lot of the uh, the events in my life. I'm extremely grateful to Dr. Peterson for taking the time to talk to me, but not only talk to me, but uh, give me some therapy. I think it helps. <laughs> I, I'm still not feeling, uh, not feeling cleansed by it. You know, I'm not feeling uh, 100% positive or better. So I'm, I, I guess I'm still processing it at that point right now. And that's, um, that's just one of those things. Now, this is this is the Brett Johnson show. And like I said at the beginning, I'm intent on trying to be a better person than I've been in my life. I end this show every every single time with just do the right damn thing. That means a lot to me. Because I spent so much of my life doing the exact opposite of that, of not doing the right damn thing. And it, it means a whole hell of a lot to me to... Uh, to wake up every single day and choose to be better. I had a guy that uh, they put out a couple of shorts, the producers did, about uh, being accountable, about, uh, you know, choices and, and, you know, you got to get off your ass and not wallow in self pity. 
I had some guy respond today that, uh, you know, oh, you're, you're just generalizing these, these these hasty generalizations where what about these people in Gambia? They don't have the same opportunities of you. And, and my thing is, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. They do not have the same opportunities. They do not. But that does not mean that you got to sit down and wallow in self-pity and not do a goddamn thing. Get off your fucking ass and do something. Children are extremely malleable. As children, we look to our parents as, as that guiding force. We look to our parents for that moral compass of knowing what's right and what's wrong or what to do and what not to do. And when you don't have that, when you've got parents that either don't care, don't stand up and do the right thing, allow one parent to abuse the other, uh, engage in crime, run you as little criminals, what have you, that comes with consequences. How do you survive that? Shit if I know. I survived it um, because I guess I a force of will. You know, initially I survived it by engaging in crime. And then along the path, I was given the opportunity to change. My, my stepson the other night, he asked me, he was like, uh, he's like, you mind if I ask you something? I was like, he's, he's the oldest one. I was like, no, what, what you got, man? And he's like, uh, how do you reconcile the way that you've turned your life around with all of those people who have not or cannot? And that, we were driving down to get my youngest, Carson, that New Year's Eve when he asked me that. And uh, I said, you know, that's a good question. And my answer is this. That change, I don't think that anyone changes at all unless they're forced to change. Okay, something has to force them to change. There has to be a catalyst to do that. Once that catalyst is there, at that point, that person has to make the decision, has to choose to follow that path. And that path is not an easy path. It is much easier for me on a daily basis to sit here and wallow in self-pity and not do a goddamn thing except plan on commit crime. And that's very easy for me to do because I am an extremely good criminal. Make no mistake about that. I just choose not to break the law. But the choice to change, it's scary. It's, uh, it's, it's a step into the unknown. It is, um, it's not guaranteed to work at all. And that, that prospect of failure, I think, causes a lot of people to not try to overcome those things that have resulted in their life, being what it is at that moment in time. I went to prison in 2006, escaped prison after that, got out of prison in 2011, committed crime again, recidivated, went back to prison for a year, 10 months, got out, had no idea what I was going to do. Not a clue. And what happened was, is when I, when I recidivated at that point, that was the catalyst for that change. At that point, my, uh, my wife, we weren't married yet, but Michelle, that's, that's the moment that I realized that every single relationship I'd had up to that point had been a transactional relationship. Now that's romantic friendship, you want to call it friendship, associates, things like that had been transactional. 
Okay. Michelle was the first relationship that I had ever had in my life, other than my sister, where it was not a transactional relationship. She just wanted me for me, not what I could give her. Seeing that, realizing that was the catalyst I needed to make the choice to overcome that childhood and the abuse, surviving that abuse that had happened in my past. If we're talking about uh, overcoming abuse, that's a hard thing. To me, that's compelling. I talk about stuff like this. And in the past, as you know, the Brett Johnson show has been called a therapy show, kind of cloaked in cybersecurity. I guess now it's becoming a therapy show, maybe a feel-good show when we're not doing episodes like this. But what's interesting is, is I get a lot of people that email me talking about how they're glad that I was, I was talking about stuff like this. Uh, me abusing someone, someone abusing me, um, the problems, trials and tribulations of victories, you know, overcoming obstacles in my life because it resonates with them and they recognize that and it helps them through some problems or issues that they're going through as well. Here's the thing. Somebody reaches out to me, chances are I'm going to respond to you unless you're crazy. Now I get some crazies every now and then, but most people are not like that. Most people simply hey, say hello, you know, and I, I, I tend to talk to people and, and because I want to help people. There was a lady about a year and a half ago. Her dad um, really liked her husband more than more than his daughter. I mean, he was really big on his son-in-law. The son-in-law, though, was a pure asshole. He mistreated the daughter. He was a druggie, um, stole money out of the, his wife's accounts, you know, everything else like that. Wouldn't work, nothing like that. But the dad, who was terminal, you know, the father-in-law who was terminal, he really liked him. And he kept making excuses for him and everything else. And this, 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 this woman contacted me. And she was like, you know, I've listened to your show. And... Uh, I don't know what to do. And, and we talked, emailed, had phone calls, everything else for, for months. And I, I kept telling her, I was like, hey, here's the thing. You cannot change other people. You either accept someone who, as who they are or you don't. Now, your dad, your dad does not live your life. You have to live your life. And at some point, you've got to realize that at some point, And we've talked about this on another episode, at some point, you've got to take responsibility. You have to live your life. You can't let other people do that for you. And I think that's a lot of this, this overcoming abuse. You know, I talked about that on the Art of Accountability episode, that, that we have to start being responsible for our lives. It's okay to know you've got a shitty life. It's even okay to wallow in it for a little bit. But at some point, you've got to accept responsibility for that. You've got to say, hey, you know what? Yeah, and and I'm able to look back now, and my parents were shitty parents. I'm not the only person who's had shitty parents. Shane Tapp evidently had some shitty parents too, but he didn't do the shit I did. I think the reason he didn't is because he, at a much earlier age than I did, I was in my 40s before I did, but he, at a much earlier age, took responsibility for his life. He didn't wallow in self-pity. He didn't sit there and say, yeah, nothing else I can do but be, you know, commit a crime like I did. Like I said, I was in my 40s before I took responsibility for anything. 
I think that's uh, for for this overcoming abuse. I think that's a huge part of things is accepting that you at the end of the day are the master of your fate. If anything is going to be changed, you are going to have to be the person that changes it. Now that does not mean you can do it alone. All right, this is this is kind of interesting. Now now we're getting in a flow of the show. This is what's kind of interesting. When when I was given that opportunity, that catalyst of change came. So I got out of prison after I recidivated, did my 10 months, got out. Uh, Michelle and I got married shortly after that, could not get a job, could not. But I knew, by God, I don't want to go back to a life of crime. So how did I, how did I respond to that? How, how did I help change my life? I took, I took action. And the way I took action was, you know, I, I went through this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy while in prison. Thoughts cause your feelings. Feelings create actions. If you change your thought process, the actions change at the end of the day. That's a very simple concept. Um, it's not something that you have to believe. But here's what what happened with me. I, I was the guy who took to heart this concept of fake it till you make it. So they, they, they teach you in this therapy, you know, in the RDAP program, the CBT program, they teach you that you need a support group, a safety net of people that you can count on that will support you when you need to and call bullshit on you when you need that as well. I didn't have that. I mean, I had my wife, I had my stepsons, but, you know, their family, are they really a safety net or a support group like you need? No, you probably need peers that, you know, will call your ass out when you need it. I didn't have that. And I'm not the guy. I have never been the guy that bows down to peer pressure of any type. So what I did was is I kind of created, I fabricated this support group. I went to LinkedIn and I connected with every single law enforcement official that I possibly could, kind of forming a safety net of my own. They didn't know who I was other than I was a criminal. But I did know, because my LinkedIn profile mentioned I was this U.S. most wanted guy, that I was a criminal, that I was this ne'er-do-well, I knew that every single law enforcement person that, that connected with me would be keeping an eye on my ass. I absolutely knew that. I also reached out to the FBI. Hey, I'd like to, can I do anything for you? Can we talk? Can we work together? Can I start pointing things out to you? So I established a relationship with that, knowing that that also led into that. Then I reached out to cybersecurity people, fraud analysts, all these other people, and created this safety group, support network of people who would keep my ass in check. So I was faking it until you make it, is what I was doing. Knowing that if I if I strayed at all, somebody was going to call my ass out, and that was going to be it. So that's how it started. Was like that, and it. I was telling that woman today. It stayed like that. I was in that fake it till you make it mode. It became reality during the pandemic. During the pandemic, because I I really I was constantly worried that I was going to go back and commit crime. That you know, it's Brett. I was going to go back to it. During the pandemic is when that really became a reality for me is, is, is I was losing my speaking gigs, my consulting gigs, you know, everything. The economy was going to shit. And at that point, I was really worried that I was going to go back and commit crime. So what I, I, I for the first time in my life, I actually voiced that fear first to my family 
and then to that support group that I had built on LinkedIn. I posted about it. Anybody that would call me, and I had a lot of people that used to call and ask for advice and everything else. Anybody that would call me, I'd mention it to them. Hey, you know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm going to go back and commit crime. Those FBI contacts I had, man, I'm scared about that. So this, this, this idea of faking it till you're making it, you know, this, this kind of fabricated support group that I had had became my real support group at that point in time. And by God, they were there every single day, not just not calling me out on bullshit, but just there saying, hey, are you OK? What can we do for you? Is everything all right? Just call to check on you. Let's have lunch. That's what happened. What I'm getting at is, is overcoming that childhood. Yes, the childhood has a part in in resulting in who you are as an adult, either positive or negative. Me, negative. Now it comes a positive later on, but how do you overcome that negative, the, the negative aspects of the childhood? I think that you, you have to have that, uh, that catalyst that forces the change because you're not going, you're not going to change anything unless something forces you to do that fear of laws, something like that. Okay. It's got to be a realization. It's got to make you want to change. Once that catalyst comes into play, you have to make the active decision to follow the path of, you know, not least resistance, but most resistance, because it's that unknown path. It's that rocky road that's not been tread before in your lifetime or my lifetime, but you choose that every single day. In all these interviews I've given, whether it's um, all Tucker or uh, Megan Kelly or Friedman or, or Peterson, you know, I've not really come out and said it like that. But I think that that's the uh, the takeaway at the end of the day. And, and honestly, a lot of that, a lot of this that I'm talking about right now comes from that friggin phone call that I had today. And you're going to get to meet her on this show. But uh, I, I told her that, uh, you know, I, I'm not the guy that, that likes the idea of admitting that childhood absolutely informs some of my future. But it does. It absolutely does. Now, that's not an excuse. That's just the truth. But the realization of that has to cause or bring on the conversation of, of how does one overcome those things. And I think that's a lot of what I've been getting at throughout my show, especially with the, uh, uh, the Jordan Peterson thing where he's talking as is uh, understanding that, yes, that childhood does cause things to happen in your future, but you can overcome that. And that's one of the things with these comments. 99% of the comments are positive, but but a lot of the negative comments have this, this theme on there of once a criminal, always a criminal. That seems to be almost confined to Western ideology, that whoever that person is, is that person throughout that person's arc, life arc. That is not true. We're very good about cataloging people as specific things, and they're always that person. We, we really need to get to the point, not just talking about myself, but society as, as a whole, we need to get to the point where we understand that, hey, people can change. There was a guy back several hundred, couple of thousand years ago, that was all about 
accepting that people could change. Now, they, they nailed him to a tree way back then. But there's countless stories in that book that he's in that talks about how people can change. There's this guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and he was on a road to Damascus while he was going to go persecute and kill a lot of this guy's followers. And there was none worse than Saul. Yet Saul changed and he became one of the one of the one of the top adherents of that faith. For some reason, we, we've, we've forgotten or we've lost that, that idea or acceptance that people can change. Now, most people, like I said, 99% of the comments there, they're outstanding. Right? And I, I'm very appreciative for the kindness that has been shown to me because I don't think I deserve that. The, the, the 1% that's out there, though, you know, you're always a criminal. Yeah, I, I, I'll grant you, I'm a criminal. I am. I'm a criminal. I, I choose not to break the law, but I'm a criminal. But that doesn't mean that I'm always the guy who commits crime or victimizes people. I can change that. And I've chosen to change that. And it's not just me, but we, we have to get to the point where we're understanding that people can make a decision and, and be better than they've been. We can be better as a whole than we've been. And the only thing that stops that is the choices. Okay. I'm going to end on that because I think that's a good point to end on. We can be better than we've been, and we have to be able to accept that people can be better than they've been. My name is Brett Johnson. This is the Brett Johnson Show. If you've made it this far, hallelujah. Thank you so much. We're going to close it out. How do we close it out? We close it out by saying, stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. And I say that because in today's society, we have a lot of predators in the physical world and in the online world. And it's very important that we understand that there are predators in whatever waters that we're lurking in. So we need to be vigilant on that. We need to, we, we need to take an active role in our own safety and security. That's important. Okay, so stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. Always stay vigilant. It's when you're not vigilant that predators come and prey on those who are unaware. This is the Brett Johnson Show. At the end of the day, the most important thing is to always do the right damn thing. That's it. If you can do that, you're doing all right. My name is Brett Johnson. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time.